The scripture today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way, same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. you have to leave early. Someone asks, what was church about today? It's that we have an advocate. One of the most lovely truths, promises, titles of Jesus Christ from 1 John chapter 2. John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote an entire book on this one verse of scripture because of the beauty of the truth that we have an advocate. An advocate takes the case of someone in the wrong and stands alongside them. Bunyan says that the term advocate exists in harmony with the other offices and roles of Jesus Christ. And there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of implications, all sorts of indirect things we learn from John's words that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's a court. We're guilty. There's a law. There's an adversary, an accuser. And we have an advocate who stands next to us. The context of this is one caught in sin. You see from verses one through six, John's hope is to encourage his people with what they already know. Many of you know that Jesus is your advocate because of both his perfect work, but most, more importantly to this text because that's who he is. That's his very heart towards us is to stand with us in front of the accuser. And John writes it also because we're prone to forget. And we forget in all sorts of ways. We forget by minimizing when we sin. We forget by letting the sin crush us because that's what it will do without the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit enlivening our spirit. We deflect or we do religious things thinking that doing religious things will heal us, all the while missing the maturing opportunity of acting like a follower of Christ, first before God, then before neighbor. When Beth read, I know him, when Beth read, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I hope I'm reminding you that the New Testament word for perfection is very important. It's defined slightly differently than we define it. We sort of define it like making furniture. Everything has to be perfect for the chair to work. Am I right? 
This is more like cutting a two by four, building some stairs maybe outside. Doesn't need to be perfect, but this word means mature. When we act like a follower of Jesus, in this particular case, repent to God when caught in sin and then repent to neighbor, we're being grown up in faith. I preached on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this summer, so hopefully this is a reminder, but John's style is sermonic. Though he's speaking theologically, his goal is to encourage you. He mentions propitiation, which is an important word. It means your sins are covered because of the work of Christ. But his goal is that when we sin, we respond by first confessing to him and then seeking to not sin again fleeing from that and pursuing righteousness. His tone is sermonic. If you turn to the book of James, it's anything but sermonic. It's a diatribe. If you turn to 1 Timothy, that's pastoral in tone. If you turn to the book of Colossians, it's more argumentative, not in an angry way, but I'm making a a point with lots of uh, sequences. This is sermonic. It was probably passed around to the seven churches we see at the beginning of Revelation. And he remembered that they know these things and so he expected it to encourage them. What is the advocate doing right now? He is purchasing kingdom strength for you to flee temptation and sin and to pursue righteousness. You know, just like with our bodies, we can't just stop doing this. We must start doing something else for it to work. Any of you that have dieted, you know that taking something out of your diet without replacing it with something healthy is not going to work as well. We're not that simple. In Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, he speaks very eloquently about this. When we see idols in our life, we not only have to, to, that's a metaphor in the scripture, for things that we ask to deliver to us in ways only God can, be it money or power, whatever. We not only knock the idol down, we have to put the gospel into its place or another will come up. The advocate is even now giving us kingdom strength to flee sin and pursue righteousness. And as I'm preaching this, what I, <laughs> what I get nervous about is you hear something along the lines of God's heart for you is that you manage your sin. You keep a ledger and you just want to get to 88 instead of 89 by tomorrow. Not only is that not what I'm saying, is it not what John's saying, it's real close to heresy. It's real close to leading you away from the true Jesus. The true Jesus' heart is, I'm alongside you, advocating, strengthening you to avoid, flee from sin and temptation and to pursue righteousness. We've got to be clear, despite the fact that our culture, for the most part, as far as I can tell, does not believe sin exists, we know that it does and that it's real. And what does it do? Was that Matthias that defined it during the children's sermon? It was a great job. Great job. Great job, grandparents. The first thing that sin does is it violates the holiness of God. The second thing it does is it harms community. And the third thing it does is it disintegrates your very self, which reminds us that God's a resurrecting God who heals and restores and renews us into life. And when I say those things, 
If the culture's right that sin doesn't exist, that's gonna either annoy you or crush you if you think I'm right. But if the gospel's true, it motivates us to know that God's holiness is real and cannot be in the presence of sin. To know that our sin, no matter how secret the knowledge of it is, our sin harms community. And we want our community to flourish. Know that we ourselves are disintegrating under unconfessed and unrepented of sin. The advocate comes alongside us. He speaks to the accuser who says that's who they are, that sin. He says, no, no. No, I've given them a new heart. And next time, they're going to avoid that and choose righteousness. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. David Robert Lesby Simpson, an elder here, passed away a few years ago. And every time he presided over the confession, he would quote this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I loved the way he would say it. It's one of the few times that he would talk loud enough. He sang beautifully loudly. When he would talk, his voice would just drop. Julie Peacock put a sign on the lectern and said, talk like you sing. (laughs) This is Jesus in his exaltation. Are you familiar with that word? I won't stay here too long with theologians like to summarize the work of Christ in a couple of ways. So there's the work of Christ before the incarnation that's in the Old Testament. It's in some ways veiled and yet the Old Testament speaks a lot about Jesus. There's the work of Christ in his humiliation. That's a way of summarizing when he emptied himself and walked the earth and learned to sympathize with us. And then there's the work of Christ in his exaltation. Jesus as advocate is doing work on your behalf for your good and flourishing and for the flourishing of the world in his exaltation right now. And the reason that I put those words in here is not because I want to impress you. If that impressed you, you're too easily impressed. But because when we study and learn things like the work of Christ before the incarnation, the work of Christ in his humiliation, and the work of Christ in his exaltation, our brains and our hearts are more, integrate more the knowledge and motivation for us as a follower of Christ. That's why we study. We don't study the Bible to make sure we have more information. We study the Bible to remember it more frequently. The good news that we have been given a pathway of a flourishing life through Jesus Christ. And you see the very heart of Christ in his humiliation, in his earthly life. Do you remember this? This is right before he goes to the cross. And follow the very heart of Christ in action with Peter. This is before Peter denies him. This is in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is so compassionate towards Peter. He knows Peter's going to fail. He's trying to both soften the blow for Peter and advocate for him. And then he says, when you've turned again, that's repentance, strengthen your brothers. There is no shame in repentance. It is but a choice of life. Peter wasn't quite picking up what Jesus is putting down. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. 
deny three times that you know me. This is the very heart of Jesus in action. Then in his humiliation, now in his exaltation, advocating for you and for me to avoid lives of death and to choose lives of life. He guides us to repent. That's the point of this part of John. This is how John helps us understand the Gospels and, in fact, the entire Scriptures. Receiving Jesus as advocate, receiving his propitiation in salvation, the covering of our sin, then guides us to repent. And this is where the Scripture is thorough in its good news and in its freedom. I know that we could divide this room up in a, in, a, in a relatively binary way. You either believe people can change or you don't. I believe that the scripture's teaching on repentance teach us that the only thing relationally that takes more energy than learning to repent to those in your life, to listen to them, to love them well, is to actually not change and keep everything the same. I believe the scriptures paint us a picture that we can do that and it will cause a lot of pain and loneliness. Or we can learn to live a life in keeping with repentance. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87. Is that clear for those of you with binoculars? (laughs) Calls it repentance unto life. Because I know that repentance sounds like a harsh word, but it's not if sin is real and the good news is available to us. It's actually a guide into life, which is why I love that Westminster calls it this. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience in part based on 2 Corinthians 7.10. And listen to this contrast. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, shedding of shame and fear, whereas worldly grief produces death. Those are the alternatives. I hope that you know what repentance means in saying sorry to God and then seeking the newness of life that he guides us into. During the confession of faith in the first service, I was convicted of a sin against my 15-year-old and it didn't shame me. I just said to God, forgive me and guide me next time in the way that our relationship works because I'm an over-worrier and an over-thinker and an over-emoter. I'm not going to tell her, but next time the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to act different. Those of you with teenagers know what it is. It's being present when she wants to talk, right? And I'm not crushed by that. It doesn't actually, the, the, the language is strong here. It does bother me, but because of Jesus, I repent and then remember to move towards her next time. Throughout the scriptures, this is told to us in so many ways. Listen for the contrast of the two ways of life according to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not weather. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a tree just outside this door. If you think that's a bad picture, that's because I took it. And you're probably right. And it was planted in honor of Don Haas, who pastored faithfully here in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And seasonally, I'll go take a picture of it and send it to him. And it's budding a little bit, and the snow's on it, and I thought it was beautiful. Psalm 1, 2 Corinthians 7, the Westminster Confession. John, in his sermonic verses here, to the seven churches are reminding us of the two ways of doing life. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the dust after you've swept. That's the way that would either minimize or ignore opportunities to repent to God and to neighbor. I got a a B minus on my exegetical paper on Psalm 1 in seminary, and the reason is not because I'm bad at Hebrew. Actually, pretty good. I even got a warm fuzzy once from a professor. I didn't know that he gave out warm fuzzies. I defined a word correctly, not by rote, but um, through the structure of Hebrew. But on this particular chapter, I got a B minus because I was so in awe of the contrast. Instead of paying attention to the Hebrew and the footnotes, which is what I was supposed to do, I wrote a paper. He didn't, I don't even think he read the second page. It was like a five-page paper. Because the opportunity, friends, is life. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who guides us to repent and live. John would invite us to imagine a courtroom Judge Judy fans, she's back, right? Did I hear that? She's back? Yeah. I was thinking of in Goodwill Hunting where you have a man that you're sympathetic to, but he's in the wrong, and he chooses to advocate for himself. Remember, you're watching courtroom drama, and the judge is like, are you sure you want to represent yourself? And if you know that the person has done the wrong thing, you're sort of like, all right, justice is going to be swift. If you're sympathetic to the character, you know they're not guilty. You're a little concerned for them that they're choosing to represent themselves. We're standing in a courtroom. We have sinned. God's holiness must be covered. It's the propitiation. There is an accuser who would convince us and God that sin defines us, but we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who stands next to us. Many of you know this. There's an assumption in 1 John chapter 2 that we know our need. Many of you know your need. Listen to me. If you know your need both for salvation and to be guided by Jesus, you are blessed. And the whole purpose of this sermon was to encourage you. Because our advocate will not and has never lost. It appeared that he did in purchasing our covering, but he did not. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't nap, though he did when he was on earth. 
He kept the law perfectly. He doesn't get annoyed with you. He is not intimidated by the accuser. And he'll never give up advocating for us until either he returns or we go to be with him. That is good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to live in the freedom of the life you both purchased for us and have guided us into. Our false selves in the world would either crush us with the knowledge of our sin or would encourage us to minimize it or explain it away. And yet our opportunity in light of your advocacy is to live. Guide us, Father, Son, and Spirit into lives in keeping with repentance that we might flourish and honor you and love well those in our lives. Amen.